Welcome, Northbrook. What a good day. Our reading this morning is from 1 Peter, verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one on the welcome table at the back. If you don't own one, please take it home with you as our gift. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Uh, well, as you can tell, we're starting our series through First Peter, um, and really excited about that. It's First Peter, living hope and fiery trials. Uh, there for a while, it said fiery trails, but Shelby caught that this morning, so we're thankful for that. I'm sure there are some of those that you need to cling to. Your, if you're in a fiery trail, you need to cling to a living hope as well. Uh, but that's not exactly what First Peter uh, is talking about. And I know we only got a couple verses, but there's more to do than you might think. So we're just going to hop in. I wanted to start with the story. I figured there might be some more kids in here this morning. And uh, one of the books I was reading as I was preparing for First Peter um, is called Evangelism in Exile by Elliot Clark. Really helpful little book. If you listen to books, it's only like three hours long, short little book, which is always a good find um, and really helpful. So I'd encourage that book, that resource to you. Um, and in chapter one, he gives this example of his 11-year-old son. So kids, I wanna, want you to hear this, and then adults, I want us to be encouraged. This, this story kind of captures some of what we'll see uh, in First Peter. And so I'm going to tell the story uh, from the father's perspective. It says, one afternoon as my wife was working in the kitchen, I heard a sudden and sharp gasp. Then without hesitation, she cried out for me to come. I immediately hurried to her side, assuming she was hurt. Sorry, I'm going to give you a little context. There are missionaries in Central Asia during this uh, part of their life. But there, from our kitchen window, I found her staring out toward the opposite hill between our home and the village. Followed her sightline to the silhouette of our 11-year-old son, standing on a mound of dirt more than 100 yards, uh, about more than 100 yards away. Across from him was a group of boys, a village troop we both easily recognized, a gang known by kids in our neighborhood as the Rough Uncles. As we squinted into the distance, our eyes locked onto the boy closest to our son. From his body language, we could sense that this was a confrontation, and the village boy's hand was a large rock about the size of a football. We both watched in stunned silence as he cocked his arm and raised the stone in anger over our son. I froze. For that brief moment... We felt helpless and hopeless as parents, unsure of what to do and completely unable to rescue our son. Looking back, I realized I could have thrown open the door and yelled at the village boys, or I could have raced down the stairs and outside to come to my son's aid, but would that have helped or made things worse? It all happened so fast, or maybe I was too slow. But before we could muster any semblance of a response, the situation was somehow diffused. The boy lowered the rock, and our son came hurrying back to the house, his face mixed with concern, shame, and uncertainty. As soon as he walked in the door, we embraced him and asked what had happened. He told us the rough uncles had come upon them without warning. Neighborhood kids usually avoided any contact with them. The group knew that he was a foreigner, foreigner and thus presumed he was a Christian. 
They asked if he believed Jesus is God's son who died on the cross. When our son answered in the affirmative, the boys were incensed and threatened him with stoning. My wife, who by this time was almost beside herself, then asked, so what did you do? To which he responded, I told them I wasn't afraid of them. I told them that they could kill me, but that didn't matter because I would just end up in heaven. And so one, kids, don't let anybody tell you that you can't make an incredible impact for Jesus. Uh, The encouragement of God's work in this little boy's life is an encouragement to us all. Um, And and what is going on in this story, in this quick little antidote, uh, is captured in 1 Peter. That, That what this little boy was clinging to was a living hope in the midst of this fiery trial. And we see this is an extreme example, obviously. And so that's one of the reasons I share it because it, it kind of captures like the, the most extreme example in which we would be faced with these kinds of decisions or this kinds of struggle or when we would be most tempted to not cling to the living hope uh, we have. Uh, but the simplicity of just this kid saying, man, if, even if I were to die, I would be with Jesus because he's not dead, but he is alive. That's the simplicity uh, of our hope. But, but even the, the fiery trials, the different kinds of trials Peter is going to be mainly talking about are not even really uh, this extreme. In, in 1 Peter 1.6, he talks about these trials. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then he uses that same uh, word in 1 Peter 4.12 when it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And when we hear those verses and even think of the New Testament, we often kind of jump to these extreme scenarios. And those would come upon, obviously, Peter himself and uh, these people that he's writing to. But at this point, they're not in that. So Nero is the emperor at this time. But Nero hadn't entered into, you know, he's famous for persecuting. Christians, but that happened around 67 AD. Uh, Peter was writing this first letter in the early 60s, uh, like not 19, just the 60s uh, AD, and uh, he was writing. So the, the, the heavy persecution had not really started yet. The, the kind of persecution Peter was writing to encourage them in was just kind of that this was uh, new Christians in, in, in an area where people were just completely unfamiliar with Christianity. And so they, they, were, they were looked down upon, they were ridiculed. They were, it's interesting that Christians in the you know, first and second century uh, and early on in the church were often called atheists. I don't know if you know, if you ever heard that or know that. And they were called atheists because they didn't believe in the myriad of gods that most people believed in that day, that there was a God for everything. They just believed in the one God of Christianity. And so they were actually called atheists somewhat ironically in our day and age now. And so that's how they were looked upon. They, were, they weren't, at this point, their lives weren't being threatened, but their lives were being incredibly inconvenienced. You know, parties they were once invited to, they were no longer uh, invited to. Uh, people were just confused about their faith and uncertain about what they even believed and would mischaracterize them uh, a lot. And people would uh, claim they believed things that they uh, didn't really believe. These were the kinds of things uh, that they would face. They would endure ridicule. I think, I, like, it's similar to, I was in preparing for First Peter, I was studying Asia Minor, just the, the area, the geography, and uh, on, um, I think this was like history, worldhistory.org or something like that, it just has this line. It says, under Roman rule, the land became stabilized 
Roads were built and the infrastructures of many of the cities improved. The coastal communities flourished and uh, the, the, excuse me, the coastal communities flourished and Ephesus especially enjoyed great prosperity until the rise of Christianity when earthly advances in the region were neglected in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And so just that kind of, there was no footnote, there was no evidence to support that. It was just like, you know, and then the Christians came and ruined everything. Um, and that's just how, I mean, just reading this website right now, and that's how uh, this, this historian thought of Christianity. Just kind of that, uh, just commonplace ridicule uh, of these people that believe these backwards things and, and kind of tend to ruin uh, everything that is good. That's the kind of things uh, that they were enduring. And I think um, as we consider our place as we consider the Holy Spirit inspired these words to this people at this time and the Holy Spirit means these same words for us in this moment I, I think it's there, obviously it's a little different Christianity isn't new Christianity isn't just you know come upon us uh, in, in, a, in a new way like it did here um, but in, in similar ways that we, we find ourselves more and more in a culture that thinks people that believe in the stuff of Christianity are just absurd. Um, now, even in the Bible Belt and Texas, there's still lots of context where that's not true. There's still lots of places, lots of groups probably where you hang out with, maybe schools you go to or friend groups where that's not true at all. But growing, I mean, that's Texas and the states. Obviously, there are places where that's less and less true. But even in Texas, even in our environments where our workplaces are uh, becoming a place that can times be more hostile to what we believe than welcoming uh, to what we believe. And so in that, there, there's much that First Peter will have for us uh, as we consider his words. Um, and that's why Peter actually used this word elect exiles uh, that you see there in verse 1. They actually weren't uh, genuinely exiles. They weren't, um, they weren't actually exiles. They were spiritual exiles. They'd probably lived in these places their whole life, and now they found themselves as foreigners in their own homes, foreigners in their own families, foreigners where they had felt welcome and a part of everything. Now they stand outside of those very uh, places, and, and that's what Peter is trying to communicate. I don't know if this will be helpful for you, but I like to visualize things. And so what, I'm just going to show you a map of Paul's second missionary journey. This is where um, Peter is writing to. And so you'll see all the places that he mentions in 1 Peter 1, Pontus, Bithynia, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia. There, This is Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, uh, probably one of the moments where many of these people, his all three of his mission, missionary journeys cover similar areas, but this is when a lot of them would have uh, been exposed to the gospel and believed upon Jesus, been baptized and gone back to their homes or, or came to faith in their communities and can, the gospel continued uh, to spread. Um, and so if you're thinking about modern day where this is now, uh, it's just mainly Turkey. So this is where, uh, what, what, when you hear about Asia Minor, which was a Christian term coined in like the fifth century to distinguish it from where Paul had spread the gospel, uh, is modern-day Turkey. So the gospel had spread and thrived. It is interesting now to think of modern-day Turkey, uh, a country that's 99% uh, Muslim, uh, a country that at least on paper is, uh, has freedom of religion, but just uh, uh, recently has uh, deported people for uh, sharing the gospel. Um, but that is 
the people Peter uh, are writing to in the area. And one of the reasons, I, I'm just a very visual person, so it help, helps me to see that. But also, I think sometimes we think about letters of the Bible and we forget they're written to real people in a real place, living real lives, uh, just like you and me. And so that is uh, where and who Peter uh, is writing to. And so Peter writing to these elect exiles spread among modern-day Turkey, and he's encouraging them, again, to cling to this living hope in the midst of the various trials uh, that they continue to face. And then one more piece of context uh, that I think is important and can sometimes be lost on us is uh, just even remembering Peter. Like, who is this guy? Like, we, someone's writing a letter of the Bible. We're like, man, this guy is just awesome. He's on another level. Uh, but then if you just think of the life of Peter, and you just consider his life, all he went through, all he lived through, and the ups and downs of it, uh, I'm going to share some verses with you. His, his first encounter uh, with Jesus is Andrew came and got him in John 1, 41 through 42. Andrew saying he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And I always just think about, like, you meet someone for the first time, and they give you a new name. Like, that is, uh, many of us have probably not experienced that, especially not experienced it genuinely. Like, some of us have been given new names that we do not want to identify with uh, because of certain experiences we maybe had with someone. Uh, but Peter gets this new name from Jesus, and we actually don't see uh, his response there in 1 John, but we know uh, in Luke 5, after uh, Jesus uh, does the miracle of them catching uh, a ton of fish, we see in Luke 5, 8, Peter's response to Jesus. It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And then his life was perfect from then on out. Exactly. No, it, it, it was not. Uh, he walks on water. Uh, he later on confesses clearly that Jesus is uh, the Christ to which Jesus responds to him in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Surely from then on, everything is glorious. No. Just a couple verses later, so that high to this low, Matthew 16, 23, but he turned and said to Peter, this is Jesus, get behind me, Satan. So from upon this confession that you just made, I'll build my church to Satan. That, that's, his, uh, that's Peter's life here. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's in response to Peter uh, responding to Jesus saying he's going to suffer and die. And Peter's like, no, that's not how this is going to happen. Um, and then he was a welcome party to the transfiguration. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then even in some more low points, when the, the guards come to uh, arrest Jesus, he cuts off a dude's ear. Um, it's interesting even to think that, think of his moment and his posture in that moment of inflicting harm and then what he's telling these, these brothers and sisters right now is to endure harm. Uh, so something obviously significant had shifted in him. Um, and then obviously what he's probably most famous for perhaps uh, is he denies Christ. Um, he had been through all of this, all the highs and lows, and then the man that's writing this New Testament letter denies Jesus. Uh, I dwell on these things because I think we just skip over them. We know these things, but these things really happened, um, and, and there should be uh, some, something it does and in, in some ways it encourages us. 
Um, and then, uh, as we know, he denies Christ. Then he encounters the resurrected Christ and restored. He becomes the leading apostle in the New Testament church and preaches at Pentecost, where we literally see that the church birthed into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit and predominantly used through this sermon that Peter uh, preaches. It's incredible. Um, and then he even continues to go on uh, to learn and grow. Um, we looked at uh, Acts 10 in our community or in our Go group this last Wednesday night, where where you know uh, the Holy Spirit shows up in the house of Cornelius and sends Peter there, and it's just another uh, kind of cataclysmic moment in the life of the church, where now the gospel is like not just going to these Jewish believers, but it's going to the Gentiles, and God uses Peter uh, in this way. One of the things Abigail uh, mentioned is just how encouraged she was by even in that, those dreams and the way that God rebuked Peter. Peter, uh, but then used him. And, and, and again, we see these low points of Peter's lives. And I think sometimes what's lost on us is in the same low points of our life, we need to hear God's rebuke. We need to confess. We need to repent. But it doesn't disqualify us. It doesn't disqualify us from a living out and proclaiming the gospel and being led by the Spirit and however uh, he would lead us. And so Peter's life uh, really should encourage us. Um, I, I think as we think about Peter's life, when, even if you think about that restorative moment uh, on the beach where he's eating with Jesus, and, and Jesus is like, do you love me? And by the end of those times, he asks him, the, and, and Peter's like, Jesus, you know I love you. You know I love you. And here's the thing about uh, Peter's life that should um, inspire us and should draw us in is that he had a genuine affection and love for Jesus. But here's the other reality, is he had that genuine affection and love, and he also betrayed him. Um, He betrayed him, and then he realized that, and he betrayed him again, and he continued to rebel, he continued to struggle, and he continued to come back, and Jesus, you know that I love you. Sometimes that breaks our mind. Like, we we, like, you know, we talk about our kids, like, you know what, I've always loved them. Well, I do love my kids generally in a way all the time, but there are specific moments where I do not love my kids. If I'm sinning against them in that moment, so I could answer honestly, God, you know I love my kids. But I could also answer honestly, I am betraying my kid in this moment. Uh, I am sinning against them in this moment. And we just don't, as Americans or whatever where our situation is, we don't do that well. And we don't do that well with Jesus. Jesus, you know I love you. But you know what? We also betray him. And we need to realize, like, as we look at the life of Peter, those both happen, and he's drawn in, and Jesus continues uh, to use him. I was thinking about even the way we, if someone, me and Ginger were on a walk just the other day, and she was like, hey, how do you feel about Jesus? I'm like, dude, I'm just on a walk. Why are you asking me these questions right now? Um, and, uh, and she was, uh, she was like, yeah, how do you, and she just asked me different questions about Jesus. And I was like, you know, at times, I feel like he's kind of like a book on my bookshelf. I know about him. He's there, but he's just not really present in my life. Um, and that, that's often how I treat Jesus. And then other times, he's, he's everything. He's, I, I have no hope without him, and I feel that deeply to my bones. Um, and, and I just don't want any of us, especially as those that love and follow Jesus, to think that we're just living in one or the other. Uh, if, we, if we get stuck there, uh, and then there's something about the fullness of following Christ that you need to continue uh, to learn. 
And then Peter's life obviously should encourage us to give our lives for the sake of Jesus uh, and his church. Uh, This is what we see modeled in Peter's life. Um, You may be young or old or maybe have just blown it just recently with sinful choices. Uh, You may, again, be treating Jesus and his church as if they're just kind of the icing on the cake to your life. This is like kind of the, this isn't, you know, in uh, their context, in the letter he's writing, you know, they, if they didn't have the church, they would have nothing. A lot of times they didn't have their families, they didn't have their friends anymore. Again, they weren't getting physically persecuted at this point, but uh, culturally and societally, they, they, if they didn't have the church, they would have nothing. The reality is, if we don't have the church, we still have things. And so, and so we don't feel that immediacy of the need to give our lives for the sake of Jesus and his church like Peter does, like, uh, like in a way, I, I would say that we should. Now, we, shouldn't, don't, we could be thankful that our culture is not ridiculing us maybe to the same extent, but we should uh, consider, should we feel more like elect exiles than we really do? Should we feel more as if, man, if I don't have the church, if I don't have Jesus, then I am lost? And and then what would it look like for us to consider that? I I thought about this hypothetical, and this is going to be one of those pressing hypotheticals. And I went back and forth on if I should do it, and here we are. So, um, but if we had a moment to like sit down with Peter. Think about historically it's said that Peter was crucified upside down probably not too long after this letter when the persecution of Nero is likely who Paul and Peter died under. But if we could sit down with him right before he was persecuted upside down for Jesus and we were going to talk to him about our faith, about our commitment to Jesus, about our love for Jesus, uh, about our life in the church and our commitment to the church, would we walk into that conversation or we're talk to, about to talk, or talk to someone who's about to give his life for these very things, would we be excited? Would we be encouraged? Would we be thankful? Or, or would there be a twinge of shame, a twinge of, man, I hope he doesn't ask me these questions. I hope he doesn't ask me about my involvement in the church. I hope he doesn't ask me about my uh, love and devotion for Jesus through my day-to-day and my week-to-week and there's this verse in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that says, encourage the faint-hearted and admonish the idle and be patient with them all. And I think the, the, one of the things we need to consider, um, like there's a different way to respond to people. And this is one of those like um, admonishments of the idle. Like are there ways in our devotion to Jesus and his church where we have just been idle? And God, by his grace, would admonish us and encourage us and say, man, okay, what are we living our life for? What are, what are we doing here? The life of Peter should encourage us in that way. We should see his life and be uh, inspired and be, I, I think sometimes even as we get, we know we're forgiven for any and everything. Sometimes we can be so gospel that we lose our gumption. Like if you look at the New Testament, if you look at the men and women of the New Testament, uh, the women that went to see uh, Jesus and ended up seeing the resurrected Christ, the, the men that gave their lives over for the sake of Christ, there was a ton of gospel that they uh, preached and uh, magnified and enjoyed and embraced and encouraged other people to embrace, but there was a ton of gumption that they realized their life was finite. 
Um, that they had this living hope that they were going to get to see Jesus and they were going to live all of this life in light of that reality as best they could. They were going to get it wrong. They were going to repent and confess and turn back to Jesus. And sometimes because we're so gospeled, we forget that there's good Holy Spirit gumption that we should have as we devote and give our lives for the sake of his church. And I think sometimes it's just a conversation we need to have in our community, with our brothers and sisters. What does that look like in our day-to-day life? We don't need to be led by guilt in that way, but we need to be willing to introspectively ask those questions and have it in community and invite the Holy Spirit to to help us um, as we have those questions. And this is what we see uh, in the life of Peter. Again, so the two kind of main things that we'll see over and over again are that we have a living hope that Jesus is alive, that our hope is in a living Savior, and that we will face various fiery trials. Peter's going to talk about all kinds of things. He's going to talk about uh, politics and government. He's going to talk about uh, marriage. He's going to talk about uh, just friendship. He's going to talk about uh, the, the various different ways uh, that, that the gospel should be lived out in our lives. And then he's going to talk about the ways that we face suffering and how we are called uh, to endure that suffering. But even before he gets into the body of his letter, in this common greeting, Peter shares of this living hope. Look at, look at verse 2, and we'll kind of go through these things that he, he encourages um, these brothers and sisters to as elect exiles. Um, and let his encouragement encourage us as we think about the various trials uh, that we are facing. And so verse 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And so even just from this, he's just greeting them, he's just welcoming them, he's just sending grace and peace to them, but he's wanting them to know, hey, that God knows you, that God is sanctifying you, that Jesus has redeemed you. So verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that before the foundations of the world, God the Father has known you. Like as we think about the struggles we face, we think about the insecurities we have, think about the fears we have, think about the mental health issues, think about the troubled relationships in our families or in our friends. There's not one aspect of that that God the Father doesn't know you completely and deeply. And now sometimes that can be pressing because we feel exposed there, but what Peter means it, he means it to be encouraging. Like he sees you. He doesn't know you abstractly. He hasn't died for just like some kind of other version of you. He knows you as you are and how you've always been. You can look past when you were a confused little kid, when you were a troubled teenager. There's no aspect of your life that God the Father doesn't completely and fully know. And he's present and he cares and he tends. And so we can, we can have that comfort as we think about the different trials that we have faced. And because he knows all of us in all of these ways, he sends the Spirit to sanctify us, to help us obey Jesus. And this is the important piece here that God is the one sanctifying us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's a beautiful reminder that even as I was talking about gumption earlier, any gumption that we have for the sake of Christ is a miracle. Any obedience that has ever been offered to God genuinely in our life is God's miraculous work in our life. 
And so, that, I mean, again, that's the paradox of following Christ is that we choose to obey. We choose uh, to not to obey. That those choices are on us. But we know when we look back and see obedience, God is up to something. God is doing something in our life. If you, I was talking to someone, a friend recently, and they were just overwhelmed by, by the sinfulness in their life in, 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 in a healthy way, in a good way. But I was like, hey, like God has moved in you. The Holy Spirit has moved you to even be able to see your sin. And, and it might be good to even consider God has allowed you to obey him in some really sweet ways. Have you, have you even thought about that? Um, it's good for us to consider and think about the ways that God has actually moved uh, in our lives and give him all the praise and honor and glory. Uh, that there's no credit for me or for you when we obey. That, man, the Spirit's working in us and through us for his good pleasure, as Philippians 2 says. Um, and we get to praise him uh, and thank him for that. But this is, I think, one of the things that uh, we've talked about this as elders and one of the things we've talked about this as a church as well. This is one of the reasons I would love for us to be a church where we just have this culture of honoring one another. Where we actually see that obedience in our brother and sister's life and we say, man, I see what God has done here. I see how God has moved in your life and he's led you to obey in this way. What a beautiful thing that is. Uh, where we, we can struggle so much with just, it makes us vulnerable to encourage someone. Uh, it can be a vulnerable moment, and sometimes we're not good at entering into that vulnerability and saying, man, I see God's work in your life, and praise God that he is doing this and working in you uh, again for his good pleasure. And so I've, uh, one of the things I was thinking about is just some of the ways that I've seen that, and there's been hundreds of ways, but even just to, to continue to, to do that in this moment, I was thinking about some of the things I've seen in you. Um, and so now I'm actually embracing the, the, the vulnerability of this moment. It feels more awkward than I thought it was going to. Um, but Tiffany, I was thinking about you as uh, the way that God has gifted you to pray uh, and the sweet gift it, it does to build up the sake of the church uh, for the sake of Christ. And I thought, man, what are, that's why we asked you to, to close our night of uh, prayer in prayer and what a sweet moment that was and that's just one of the ways God's gifted you he's worked in you and through you for his good pleasure and it's built up the church and I'm so thankful for that I've heard recently a couple times about uh they're not here so this is even I don't know if that's better or worse uh but uh Andrew Size teaches at our uh, men's bible study and heard great things about lots of teaching but one of the things I, I wanted to highlight is like man God's gifted this brother uh, to teach and to edify and encourage the body uh to teach others and so super thankful for that and now I'm actually going to encourage someone else who is not here this is great it's going well um and they're always here James and Abigail so many of you know them they're not here right uh, well, they should be. Um, I'm just talking about, they're always here. Sorry, that was a joke completely. But um, they are always here. And they, you've, if you're new here, they have introduced themselves to you, except for this morning, um, and maybe even asked you to come over for lunch. Uh, one of the things when we went through, uh, remember, you know, the elders uh, interview every new potential member. And a lot of times when we do that, we just ask them, hey, what's encouraged you about the church? And their names often came up as someone who uh, people had just made people feel welcome. And again, that's people that God is using. Uh, and and they're, like it's that any of those things happen and the hundred other things that happen. There genuinely are so many things that we could talk about here. And guys, that's a miracle. 
It's a miracle that God works in his church to care for one another uh, in that way. And we need to be better at seeing it and highlighting it in one another. And say, man, I praise God and I'm thankful for how he's worked in your life in this way. Because that's the sanctification of the spirit that we would be obedient to Jesus. And then finally, all of this happens um, in the context of Jesus redeeming you. You see the, the sprinkling with his blood. And, and if you look at the Old Testament, I wish I had more time, but if we, ha- we could just trace the theme of blood in the Old Testament, you, you should read the Old Testament and be a, a little horrified about how much blood is everywhere. Like there is so much blood. You know, when, they would, when someone needed to be reconciled in the Old Testament, they would sprinkle blood on the two people that need to be reconciled. And I thought we should reinstitute that because our relationships probably get a lot better. Uh, like, hey, we'll just come sprinkle you with some blood of this bull. And they'll be like, no, we're good. We're fine. We, I love him. He loves me. We're going to hug. We're good. Um, we're not going to reinstitute that. Uh, but if you just think about all the offerings, all the guilt offerings, all the sin offerings, the, I mean, uh, priests in many ways were butchers in the Old Testament. Um, and they would, um, the, the blood was needed for uh, the forgiveness of sins. And, and there's something about that. We could be like just uh, put off by that. But the reality is, is, is we're supposed to feel it. We're supposed to feel like, like sin is not a light matter. Um, like following, like God is a, we have a, a loving, eternal, holy God. Um, and, and, and so the, the Old Testament should create in us like, oh man, this life with God and our relationship and how we respond is an incredibly big deal. It's a really big deal. And, and the blood shows that. And even as uh, Peter, is, he's kind of grafting this uh, new church in Asia Minor into this history. He, he calls them part of the dispersion. And that's a, that's a Jewish term, thinking of, of the, the Jews that were dispersed. And so he said, now y'all are grafted into this rich tradition. And so the question kind of should be begged is, okay, where is all the blood now? Like if we, we come from this bloody tradition of uh, needing the spilt and poured out blood of all of these animals and all these goats and all these birds for the forgiveness of so many different things and all the different ways we re- rebel against God, then where is the blood now? And, and obviously you, you know the answer, but as we read the Old Testament, it should help us feel the answer. That's why like, the, the book of Hebrews is, is drenched in this Old Testament uh, beauty so it would feel the reality uh, of where the blood has been poured out for the sake of the church. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's talking about fully and completely. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Amen? We, we, we don't see any blood for the forgiveness of our sins anymore because it has been completely and fully pour, poured out. That there's no more new blood needed. That Jesus' blood was sufficient for any sin we have committed or ever will commit. And again, as ordinary as that news is on our ears, the more we read and understand the scriptures, it is not ordinary. 
It is incredible. And, and how much more if we should feel the depths of our sin because bulls and goats need to be sacrificed, how much more the precious life of the only Son of God, that His blood, not some random bull, but the very Son of God that knows me fully and completely was willing to lay down His life and call me a friend. Like that, that, is, that is the good news of the Scriptures. That, that is what, again, Peter, even just in his greeting, he's wanting everyone, to, these, these readers, to, to feel the substance of this living hope that they have to, to cling to. That's not a dead hope. It's not a hope based on our circumstances. It is a, a living hope in the precious Son of God. This is the, what the 11-year-old boy faced this is what he clinged to when there was a life-threatening encounter. That this, this living hope that he knew that even if his life was taken away, he would be with Jesus. And so I, as we continue in 1 Peter, uh, this is what we can pray. God, would you help us see and know and understand uh, this living hope in the face of the trials we face in our day? Let me pray for us towards that end. Lord Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection, that we could have life in you. It, it is something we've heard some of us from before we could even speak. And even some of us, even though we're new Christians, it, it can become an ordinary phrase in our hearts and minds. But Spirit, would you help us see the miraculous reality that our hope is living. Our hope isn't in our intellect. Our hope isn't in our feelings. Our hope isn't in the world. Our hope isn't in provision. It is in the risen Son of God. And Spirit, right now, we just take a moment to confess that we often believe the opposite of that. We believe that what we can uh, see now, what we can feel now, what we can put in our bank account now, uh, what we can do now is where our hope comes from. And so we just, Spirit, would you help us lay those things down that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Spirit, this is a miraculous work that you do in us, and so we ask you for it. Father, we thank you for uh, just the triune work of you, of the Father that you have known us, uh, spirit, that you are sanctifying us, Jesus, that you have redeemed us, that the, the totality of the Trinity is working together for our good, for our lives, for our salvation, and that we get to experience that now and forevermore by your abundant grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.